is a special report. Knowing how to invest your money is harder than ever before. Dealing with stock market volatility, record debt, and terrorist attacks requires new thinking. At U.S. Asset Management, we can help you see the world more clearly so that you can move beyond the chaos and invest with confidence. Call us, visit us online, or drop by our office. U.S. Asset Management, helping you make better decisions with your money. Welcome back to War Stories. We are honored to have with us General Joe Arbuckle, who was trained as a combat engineer after enlisting in the Army and becoming an officer, but then was an advisor in Vietnam and ended up commanding a lot of different parts of the Army. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much, Todd. It's a pleasure to be with you. So uh, why don't you give us a quick overview of your career so people know who you are, who already don't know who you are? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Um, I'm mostly from Colorado, and mm -hmm. I went to college here on the Western mm -hmm. Slope, graduating in 68. And of course, that was the peak of the Vietnam War, as well as the draft associated with it. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any plans to go in the military at that point. I was planning on going to graduate school. Mm -hmm. However, I found out from my draft board that my number was going to come up. So I shopped around and found out that the Army offered me the best deal. And so I enlisted and came into the Army as a private. As you said, I was uh, I went through basic infantry training at uh, Fort Ord and then combat engineer training, mm -hmm. decided to go to OCS and went to an engineer OCS, got commissioned in 70. And uh, I was in uh, most of the time I was in the Army in the missile field. However, I did deploy mm -hmm. to Vietnam as an infantry first lieutenant. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a moment. Uh, stayed in the Army, decided to stay in the Army because I found it was suited to me, Todd. I, I mm -hmm. like the challenges. Above all, I like being with soldiers. I like the variety of duties and so forth. Mm -hmm. and, uh, in the end, I was an Army strategist at the top level. In addition to my commands, I was able, I was very fortunate to command at every rank I held from uh, lieutenant to two-star. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and I decided uh, after I finished my two-star command, talking to my wife, that the uh, uh, way things were going even back in then with political correctness in the Army with under the Clinton administration, that I didn't want to go back to Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. which was in the cards. And so we got out and came here to Colorado. So that's it in a nutshell, basically. I was just in D.C. for the CPAC conference, and it's it's a swamp. You can smell it. I mean, it's it's just not it, it's just a, a an odor or a, a something you feel while you're there that's just not good. It, I'd mm -hmm. like that for that to change going forward. What Before we get started with Vietnam, tell us – tell me uh, – a young officer who maybe is going through uh, infantry training or, or one of the other, uh, you know, MOS fields or whatever, or branches, what, what would you tell them at this point? Uh, well, they're already in the military and uh, mm -hmm. 
what I would tell them is that pay close attention to their instructors because the information mm-hmm. they're going to, to be receiving uh, is going to be invaluable if they ever get in a combat situation, which they will if mm-hmm. they stay in long enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would also tell them to forget about all this DEI crap that's going on and mm-hmm. just pay attention to war fighting. That's mm-hmm. the reason that we have a military. That's the reason the military exists. And all this social engineering that's going on that's so dis- disruptive in our military right now is secondary to that. In fact, it interferes with it. So basically, yeah. No- yeah, I, I tell people that I meet those notes, cautions, and warnings uh, in the aircraft manual are there for for a reason. Somebody uh, somebody figured something out that was bad and, and knew about it before you did. So let's go to Vietnam. Tell us that you were an advisor on one of the big offensives in uh, from the North Vietnamese Army. Tell Can you give us that story? Sure, I'll do that. Uh, before I do that, though, let me make a couple points. One is reference your aircraft notes and check sheets and all that. Yeah. Uh, it's funny when... Uh, when I was going through my training, the DIs would always say, listen, here, you dummies, you better pay attention because if you don't, you'll ever get yourself killed in, in a few months. Mm-hmm. And that drove the point home. We paid Yeah. Attention. Yeah. That that's in the movie. Uh, oh, Lieutenant Dan. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. about Vietnam. Yeah. Right. Uh, let me make an overarching comment, if I may, which uh, resonates with me. And I, th- I know it will with you and, and people that listen to this about Vietnam and how it, uh, is basically shown today in a different form. In Vietnam, we were we lost over 58,000 brave and loyal Americans killed by the communist uh, North Vietnamese and the communist BC. And uh, the thing that I can't accept, and a lot of people can't accept either, and they shouldn't, is that the exact same ideology of communism, now reflected as Marxism, is basically controlling our government here in the United States. Completely agree. Yes, absolutely. And uh, over the past 70 years, as you know, there's been a slow march through our major institutions, a designed march to take over, for example, our education system, which is the most important to them, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. our media, uh, news media, as well as social and social media is probably more important today, as you well know, in terms of influencing people. They've got Mm -hmm. that. Our judicial system, obviously, our political system have been infiltrated. Hollywood, the entertainment industry, which affects so many young lives in a bad way too often. And uh, now corporate America with the DEI mm-hmm. stuff going mm-hmm. on. And finally, sadly, our military. So my point is this, that we fought against communism throughout the Cold War. Also in Vietnam, lost 58,000 there. And I should mention Korea. Mm-hmm. We fought the communists in Korea too, the communist North Koreans. Support and the communist they fought the Chinese, yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. 37,000 lost there. So, just between those two wars, that's over 95,000 Americans killed by the same ideology that's got its roots here in our own country today. And they're committing unrestricted warfare against us now. We got that many dying every year of fentanyl, which is all coming from the CCP, in my opinion, pushed through the cartels up to the southern border. Uh, you know, you, you go down with bioweapons, you look at just the range of offensive operations against us. Uh, information warfare, as you said, is alive and well. Um, and Americans have to uh, just not accept it, as you said. And just once you decide that, and once you decide that you're going to devote your life to that because your kids and grandkids are important, mm-hmm. then uh, it, you become, your fear just leaves you. I, I tell people that all the time, you won't be afraid, you'll be committed. And once you make that decision. Exactly. Yeah. And uh 
Too many people are silent. They're just sitting back. They need to stand up and do that at the grassroots level. Which is what we exactly. Yeah. Exactly. School boards exactly. is a great place to start. Local elections and so forth. Yes, school boards, churches, all of it, because all the the churches are infiltrated. I mean, you just can't anywhere you see it, you just cannot accept it, and you have to confront it. I yeah. think. Um, exactly. Yeah, because uh, what they want from the other side is for us to be quiet and just yes, accept. exactly. And by the way, while we're on the topic, uh, mm -hmm. that's what this the organization Stars, uh, mm -hmm. I'm the vice uh, chairman of, is all about mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. stand against uh, racism, radicalisms in the services, and what that means is. We're trying to get rid of DEI basically out of the military. That's our number one strategic objective right now. Now, why is that? A lot of people, Todd, as you know, don't understand that DEI is an offspring of critical race theory, which is firmly rooted in Marxism. It's Maoism. It's Maoist. I mean, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It puts people into groups and pits them against each other along mm -hmm. the lines of oppressors versus oppressed, primarily using race, of course. But any mm -hmm. identity group works for them these days, and that's what's happening within the military and across our nation. It's not only race, it's ethnicity, mm -hmm. it's uh, gender, and sexual orientation that they're using these days. Uh, again, it's all about fragmenting us into groups instead of unifying us. And, of course, the military is all about teamwork and unification. Yeah. And so that's why this DEI, in a nutshell, is so disastrous to the military because it makes us color conscious and then think about race instead of the opposite and, and being colorblind, which is the way it was when I was in the military. We didn't Same care about here. person's yeah. color or whatever else. No, all you cared about at that point, we were colorblind, as you said. You just cared if you had your back. Exactly. That's, that's all you worried about. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and now uh, General Brown, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is saying we need to be color conscious. Yeah. Well, I, I while we're on that subject, you know, I, I was involved early with General Bishop and the formation of stars a long time ago. And uh, I, uh, I have been vocal calling out a lot of these senior military officials who call themselves patriots. I frankly think they were groomed to do exactly what they're doing over the last couple of decades and knew this was coming and, and enabled it and forced it along. And I hope to see some accountability at some point, not just for the vaccine and other issues, but for, uh, for what they're doing to the, to the military itself in a military court, in my opinion. So, Well, you know, uh, the sad thing is our, our military has been under the forces of political correctness for, for decades. Mm -hmm. It actually started mm -hmm. with Clinton, and mm -hmm. that's when I retired was at the end of 2000, <clears throat> at the end of his tour. And then, of course, under Obama, the political correctness was accelerated rapidly. And now under Biden, it's on, it's on steroids. And, yeah. and so that the senior officers who have grown up under this environment of political correctness uh, are, are accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and basically it's, it's uh, if anybody stands up against it, in my opinion, uh, they're not going to be at the senior ranks. That's just sure. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, getting back to Vietnam, we come back to this uh, pleasant topic, if you want uh, <laughs> later on. Yeah. I deployed to Vietnam in early January of 1972, as we said, as a Lieutenant infantry Lieutenant fully expected to be, an infantry platoon leader in some kind of a, a unit. But when mm -hmm. I got there, I, I, I quickly learned that uh, all of the U.S. combat forces at that point had pretty much been pulled out of the field mm -hmm. and either had been redeployed to the United States or in the process. The only people left fighting out, out there actually at that time were advisors. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was made an advisor and uh, put on an airplane out of uh, 
Long Ben and flown up to play coup into Tucor, which is where I resided for my tour, and uh, eventually to Advisory Team 22. I had three different jobs uh, during the course of the war, and the reason was the big invasion that you mentioned earlier on. Initially, I was detachment commander of the advisory team, which is like a headquarters and headquarters company, basically, uh, responsible for mm -hmm. security and that sort of thing. But something happened on uh, 30 March of 1972 called the Spring or Easter Offensive, two names. It was the largest enemy offensive of the entire 10-year war. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think it was Tet 68. In fact, 90% would probably say it was the largest. That is not true. Tet was big, no doubt about it. But during the Easter offensive, uh, the North Vietnamese had been planning for years to come across and basically take South Vietnam once the U.S. combat forces had been pulled out. And that's what happened at that point. They came across the border on three axes of advance, 120,000 regular North Vietnamese troops. Mm-hmm with tanks, heavy artillery, anti-aircraft guns, and all the rest that goes with that. Uh, the first axis was up north. The second was down in the Central Highlands where I was at, and the third was down in Saigon. And the idea was to split the country, overwhelm the South Vietnamese Army, split the country, and take it over. And so at that point, I was sent out to the field and, and spent a lot of my time with one or two other Americans as advisors attached to South Vietnamese units and uh, I was naive to think we were going to give them some combat advice. My name was advisor, right? So I'm just going to advise. Well, quickly learned that they listened politely to what we had to say, but they've been fighting that war for a long time. Yeah, of course. We got there and they're going to be there after we leave. And what they really wanted from us was air power, air support. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So basically my role was a glorified forward observer putting in U.S. airstrikes. And I put in... Uh, 100 to 200 of those for sure easy. Wow. One story that uh, I want to relay to you that Bill Scott mentioned is that uh, a Lieutenant Colonel and I were on this one particular team. We got the call to go into a fight where our South Vietnamese Army was engaged late in the day. We jumped on a helicopter piloted by South Vietnamese, which, which is quite an experience as a helicopter. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I can tell you more about that. I'm sure. Anyway, up to this uh, basically a mountain, a high rocky ridge, and it was so steep the pilot only could put one skid down on a rock pile. We jumped out and got oriented up there and spent the night after eating some rice under ponchos. The next morning at daylight, I had facts above us. Their call sign was Tum. These guys were with me pretty much the whole time out there, TUM facts. And the were they OV10s or OV1s or what? Uh, OV1s, remember? push pull. Uh -huh. Yeah. Push pull. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Great, great aircraft for that particular mm -hmm. mission. So the South Vietnamese that we're supporting are below us, engaged in a fight. Uh, it's a mountainous, it's a valley on two sides. There's mountains. Uh, the enemy was in tree lines along the stream. Uh, there was a large structure there, and they wanted airstrikes on that area to knock out the uh, the enemy that was hidden in positions. And so had a couple of phantoms come in, uh, dropped their ordnance. They went Winchester. And so I asked the fact, these, these guys have any uh, cannons on board? I'd like to use those. Mm -hmm. so, no, the Phantoms don't have cannons. Yeah, no. took them off. Yeah. So the next sorties that came in uh, was a was an A7 off mm -hmm. a carrier. And uh, as he was putting the sorties in, I started hearing this uh, anti-aircraft fire, 51 caliber, shooting at the uh, planes as they were coming in. And it's distinctive. Duck, duck, yeah. duck, duck, yeah. Heavy yeah. 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 So I'm looking all over the place trying to locate this guy. And I looked and looked and looked as the, as the bombs are being dropped. 
the aircraft would come in, he'd pickle and start to pull up and then the firing would begin. And this went on until he had expended all his bombs and I asked him to hang around because right during that last run, I saw a muzzle flash. I located this guy. Uh, and see, I've been looking all around in the tree line, which is the obvious place where that, that gun emplacement would be hidden. But I'll be darned if he wasn't right out in the middle of a rice paddy, a dry paddy. Really? And he had a trap door. He had a wow. trap door where he was hidden. He couldn't be seen. And as soon as he was ready, he was be watching the aircraft. They'd take the trap door back, pop up and shoot, and put it back down. Wow. So uh, that's why uh, he, uh, he'd survived that long. And so I had the... A7, I talked to the fact, of course, I'm saying, look at this building, look at this tree line, see that rice paddy right there? He's right in the middle of it. And that's how we had to do business. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, A7 came around, did a gun run, and I could see the cannon just churning up the ground right next to that position, but he missed it. Mm -hmm. Had him come around the second time, and that time he went right over the top of it. Uh, that stopped the firing, obviously. Long story short, the South Vietnamese went into that area after it quieted down. And lo and behold, found out after the fact that the airstrike had wiped out a North Vietnamese battalion headquarters, along with that mm. anti-aircraft gun. Holy cow. That's the way it worked. But in the tunnels, the, tunnels, right? Was that what they oh, were? Yeah, they had tunnels, sure. Yeah. But this was just a trap door deal. I see. Uh, but the lesson learned is you need to have cannon on how close it is yeah. to the aircraft. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, the decision to move the A-10 to the Boneyard is one of the Worst or most nefarious decisions I think could the Air Force could make. Um, anyway, it's a whole nother show we could do. <laughs> exactly. So, there were a lot of interesting experiences as, a, as an advisor. We're basically out there on our own. Uh, we had four things, Todd, that were really important to survival. One was our, our radio, backpack radio, PRC-25, Brick 25, mm -hmm. it's called. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Weighed about 25 pounds on a metal frame. The next was a map. Mm -hmm. in a compass and then our weapons in that order mm -hmm. priority because the radio was our lifeline without it sure we're, we're done and uh we lived a lot off the land in that particular time frame uh we had an interpreter obviously because we didn't speak the kind of vietnamese we needed to to locate the friendly as well as the enemy positions and mm -hmm. then relay, relay that to the facts above us and so we would send our interpreter down to the villa once in a while when they're close to get food get some chicken eggs or whatever and uh, that's the way it worked. Wow. Another interesting experience, I was, uh, another Lieutenant Colonel and I were uh, airlifted into the base of a mountain near the coast in this particular operation, in this fight. Um, our South Vietnamese counterparts were engaged with a large North Vietnamese, probably battalion or two battalions size on a mountaintop. So we were dropped at a base of the mountain. We had to hike up to the top, got up there, and from that position, we could see the other mountaintop, which was just across a valley on the other side. And we were putting in airstrikes in, you know, for three or four hours over the fact above us. And uh, they ran out of sorties, air sorties. And all of a sudden, a Marine fact comes up on the line. Mm -hmm. He's in a single uh, engine airplane. I don't look like a Piper Cub to me. I don't know. What it was. Yeah. Anyway, he started talking to an Air Force fact. And he said, hey, look, I've got a destroyer out here. Do you want to put in some destroyer naval gunfire? Well, I said, well, I've never done that. I don't speak language. <laughs> How do we do this? And so uh, we set up, a, set up a relay operation where I would tell the uh, Air Force FAC about the target. He would put that in. He would tell the, the Marine FAC. We put that into naval gunfire information. 
out off, off to the destroyer. And so the destroyer comes back, or actually the Marine fact, and said, well, what do you want? You want us at the top of this mountain like you've been doing, or do you want us to spread it out over about a half mile and walk it down in 100-yard increments off the top down to the bottom? I said, well, if you can do that, that's what I want. Wow. So we passed that to him, and uh, I could see the destroyer with binoculars. He was about two miles off the coast, cruising parallel to the coast, and could see the flashes of those five-inch guns when he would fire. And you, you heard in movies before, it sounds like a freight train going over. Mm -hmm. Well, the rounds went right over our head because, again, we're on top of this mountain, hitting on the mountain on the other side of us. And so we could see the flashes, the rounds would go over, and then a few seconds later, you could hear the, the noise from the guns being fired. But they did a tremendous job. They just tore up the top of that mountain. And uh, the end result was, after that was finished, pretty much the South Vietnamese forces were able to go up. And uh, I think there were about 60 enemy dead counted on that particular operation i wonder if the navy still has that that corporate knowledge you know well i don't know mm -hmm. but the thing that impressed me about it was that ship out there bobbing up and down moving pretty yeah. slowly and yet he could hit the targets and walk the uh the rounds up and down it was obviously computer controlled mm -hmm. even back then yeah yeah what else? When did when did the when did when did the uh, final when did Saigon fall? Uh, was it seventy five? Yeah. What happened was uh, again. This is seventy two. We went on a counteroffensive, stopped this major North Vietnamese offensive, primarily I think due to the U.S. air power because mm -hmm. it was unlimited at the time mm -hmm. because we had no competition with U.S. combat forces on the ground. The same amount of air was available as when they were there, and yeah. so a lot of times I would be. Uh, by the radio and a fact would come up and say, yeah, I've got four F4s here. Can you use them? I never wow. requested them. So we always had targets uh, ready to go on our maps. So we, we put in tons and tons of, uh, of airstrikes. Anyway, the offensive got stopped. North Vietnamese got pushed back to a point of a stalemate basically. And I wound up as as with the rest of the advisors coming out of the field in about January 73, we were among the last to come out. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Paris peace talks were going on at that time with Kissinger. And uh, so they went through that and there was an agreement made, as you probably know, that uh, the U.S. would continue to support the South Vietnamese Army with uh, fuel, ammunition, replace equipment that was damaged. In return, the North Vietnamese, we would not uh, uh, do any more bombing of the North and the North Vietnamese would not come on a, another offensive against the South. In other words, we just leave things as a status quo. Well, that was 73, uh, and then in 75, as you know, the North violated that agreement after our own Congress, or it was a Democrat Congress at the time, decided to cut off all support to the South Vietnamese Army in violation of our agreement. Mm -hmm. At that point, the South Vietnamese Army was left up the creek without a paddle. The North Vietnamese rolled in knowing that and uh, took over Saigon, and that's when Saigon fell, was in 75. A similar pattern throughout these wars over the last 80 years, unfortunately. Um, anything else on the Vietnam issue, sir? Uh, our audience should yes, know yes. about, yeah, the, about the war. Yeah. yeah, I want to make a point here that's universal. And uh, that was a war where our, our public and our news media made a terrible mistake of blame, blaming the warriors for the war. Mm -hmm. And that was a result of all the protests and the, the bad way, the disrespectful way our troops were treated when they came home. Uh, the point here to be made is that 
our military doesn't decide when to fight, who to fight, in many mm -hmm. cases, how to fight or when to stop fighting. Those are all political decisions. Mm -hmm. And we didn't lose that war militarily. I don't think we ever lost a major engagement with our military, but we did lose it politically. And that's been our, our history here recently in our, in our country, as you know. And Afghanistan uh, was mm -hmm. a classic example of that, if you want to call that part of the war a war. Mm -hmm. The way we, uh, we uh, pulled out there and basically surrendered uh, to the enemy on the battlefield and with all the consequences involved in that. But uh, wars, again, uh, are not decided by the military. Surely the military senior leadership provides their best military advice to the uh, commander in chief and to Congress and what ought to be done, but the decisions are theirs. I, I don't have the names in my memory, but the U.S. and Vietnamese general at the end of the war and the U.S. guy says, uh, you know, you never defeated us on the battlefield. And the Vietnamese general said, well, that's irrelevant. Yeah, I think that Maybe was true. Yeah. I think that was yeah. yeah, 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 it's tragic. Um, the way that has happened and uh i don't think we've learned our lessons from it either well that's we could talk all day about that uh, the reasons behind all this i think a lot of that's coming clear as we speak that there were agendas that were not in the country's best interests uh, over the last period of time oh, yeah yeah well back in vietnam johnson of course his agenda was the great society that was what yeah he was pushing exactly and he, the, the war was a secondary thing to him, was an irritant to him. Yeah. Best determined what I've read. And so he never fully supported it. We could have won it if we'd been unleashed and gone into the North and it wouldn't have lasted long if that had happened. And right. Yeah. Well, sir, thank you. Is there anything else you want to get out to the audience? Well, I've, I've touched on it already. I think I'll conclude mm -hmm. with it, uh, mm -hmm. Todd. And that is, uh, you know, we're about to lose our constitutional republic to the forces of socialism and Marxism. Mm -hmm. And uh, if people don't get engaged and start pushing back, as you said earlier, uh, that's going to happen. And this election we have coming up is probably going to, it will be the most important, I think, in our history since uh, our founding. It's existential. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, all the policies that are in place right now that are bringing our country down are political policies. Mm -hmm. And so the solution is political. Those policies have to be reversed. And that means again, voting and getting the right people in. Yes. People can't be lazy. Can't say I'm not going to vote because I might not, you know, not, not, might not be a free and fair election. Well, you don't have that opportunity at this point. You have to vote. You got to exactly. get everybody, you know, to vote. We need hundred percent participation to overwhelm whatever fraud is out there, or at least try to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, freedom has to be fought for every day. Um, as the old mm -hmm. say, saying goes, it's uh, it's not free. There's a mm -hmm. cost. And, uh, we've been warned by a lot of people about complacency and mm -hmm. what happens uh, to freedom when our when our citizens are complacent. And uh, that's exactly where we're at. And a big part of it, again, is, is the media and the, the information yep. that's put out. We're trying to change that. I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you, sir. We'll talk down the road, maybe. Yes, maybe see you with a STARS event. Take care. It's going to be a good day.
morning, baby. Shipping beats this Monday. We do have a little bit left available here. Check us out, familyfarmbeefbox.com. Thanks. Have a good day.